This is episode 57 of the Landscape Photography Show, and on this podcast episode, we're talking with photographer Kate Sylvia, and I invited Kate on after we served together on a panel for a webinar for post-processing and outdoor photography, and I was fascinated to hear Kate's experience in, in jobs, a multitude of different kinds of jobs before she actually became a photographer. But not only that, hearing her pathway into learning photography, actually paying for a course and like going to basically a school type of education to learn photography. And that's so far-fetched to think about in this day and age when we have so many free resources to learn photography. This could be a good fit for some types of personalities for people. So I wanted to ask Kate about that, not only her education into photography, but also her teaching style and why photographers are so tenacious when it comes to getting the right photo and determined to do that no matter what kind of person that you are. The Landscape Photography Show is a podcast where you can listen to your favorite photographers talk about their journey in photography. It's a place where you can be inspired and also learn how to take better photos. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hey, what's up, guys? We're here with Kate Sylvia, and Kate and I were just talking about living in Charleston. I've visited Charleston, Kate, and I've been there uh, I think I went there for like a three-day trip and had a really good time. If if somebody doesn't know what Charleston like has to offer for photographers, what insight can you give them? Because I think it has a lot of potential that people don't really know about. I actually have, uh, here's my shameless plug, right out of the gate, shameless plug. Yeah. <laughs> I have uh, an ebook, The Nature Photographer's Guide to Greater Charleston. Uh, that's available. And that was that was uh, a labor of love because this area is so incredibly photo rich that the locals here, we never run out of things to take pictures of. Mm -hmm. um, and and we never get tired of it either. We never get tired of the gardens and the beach and the sunrises and sunsets and, and the historic downtown area. Uh, and it's it's literally endless. Why do you think you don't get tired of it? Because a lot of places, I mean, you do, you, you get that point of where you're like, well, there's really not that much else to shoot. I understand. Yeah. I, it's, it's kind of hard to say. It's almost as if every time I go downtown and, and maybe this is a result of the fact that I teach mm -hmm. and that I, I don't necessarily go down there with the same set of eyes every time. And so when I go downtown and I do, cause I do a lot of individual tutoring in this area and we do it downtown in the gardens and sometimes at the beaches and things like that, but I'm actually looking at it differently. I see things through other photographers work and through their eyes and it actually helps take me in new directions every time that I go back to, to visit someplace um, merely changing out the type of equipment that I'm using from one visit to the next, you know, one time I'll go to the beach and I, I, I am just in a wide, like a wide angle mood. You know, it's like everything I see is from here all the way to the horizon. And then the next time I go to the beach, all I want to use is, you know, my 300 millimeter and I want to get close-ups of every little thing. And so I just, I look at the same places with, almost like fresh eyes every time I go out there and, and, and visit. So I, I think the teaching aspect of it actually helps me a little bit to just look at things a little bit differently. Um, and, and I study other people's work as well. So I look at how other people are seeing the world and there's so many photographers in this, in this area. It's, it's almost unreal. And the people who visit this area and take photographs and post them on social media. So I'm constantly seeing other people's work and what they're looking at. And I go, oh, that's a really unique way of looking at that. And it, it kind of helps give me new ideas. The three places I need to go if I'm going there for the first time are where? I would say if you're going to pick one of the gardens, because uh, everybody wants to go visit one of the historical gardens, I would probably hit Magnolia. 
-hmm. it's Magnolia Plantations and Gardens, and it's on Highway 61 west of town. And I think it's probably the most versatile because it has the Audubon Swamp Garden there as well. So if you are also a birder uh, or a reptile fan, because you can always uh, catch some gators there. I mean, not catch, catch, but <laughs> get some, <laughs> jump on them and like uh, of, of alligators there and, and turtles and uh, on occasion copperheads, you know, which I would watch out for. But uh, it, it has, I think, the most versatility as far as absolutely incredible landscapes, lots of reflections, and you can also do wildlife there. So you could just spend an entire day there. Um, so that's one location that I would probably do. And then definitely the historic downtown area, mm -hmm. um, going up and down East Bay Street. A lot of people have heard of this place called Rainbow Row. Um, it's bathed in sunlight first thing in the morning and then late in the day it's uh, you know all in shadow and you know getting there uh, probably on a weekday morning before the hustle and bustle gets going uh, you might be able to photograph it without cars in front of it <laughs> most of the time there's cars in front of it which is most unfortunate um, so I just tell people if, if the cars are annoying that they need to start concentrating on the little bits and pieces, the window boxes, uh, the iron, the iron work throughout downtown Charleston is absolutely incredible. And, you know, all those little nuances are, are fantastic. So those are two locations. And if you want to go to one of the beaches, now they're, they're all beautiful and they all have wonderful things to offer. Um, I think my favorite is probably Folly Beach. Mm -hmm. And that's just a, a personal choice. There are folks who absolutely love Sullivan's Island, Isle of Palms. Uh, and a little bit further out of town, it's a bit of a hike. Uh, Botany Bay and Edisto Beach are, are mm -hmm. south of here, but it takes a lot longer to get there. So if you're just kind of staying in the Charleston area, Folly Beach is probably the one that I would hit. And I think that it, on one end, uh, you can see one of the old lighthouses. It's it's not operational. It's not lit, but it's still an interesting photo subject. Uh, and then on the other end, they've got a county park and lots of tide pools. And in the winter time is about the only time of year that you can actually get the sun setting over the ocean down there. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just one of the caveats of being on the East Coast. We've got great sunrises, beautiful sunsets, but sunset over water is a little bit harder to come by. Probably the more important question is best place to eat is where? <laughs> um, you know, everybody around here goes straight to this place called Hyman's, but I, I mean, no offense to Hyman's, but I went there once and it was basically like your regular seafood place and it didn't, uh -huh. it didn't knock my socks off. Uh, I know I'm, I'm going to catch it online. I know it from people. <laughs> <when they're laughs> there are going to be repercussions for that statement. Um, but, uh, Hall's Chop House, I think is absolutely phenomenal. And I love, uh, the boathouse. Okay. okay. Fantastic places to eat. When we went there, we literally went, I took my camera too and took a few shots in Charleston, but we literally went just to eat because we love like good, really good food. And Charleston is full of restaurants. Our, our favorite was Hominy. Have you ever been there? Yeah. Hominy's good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one that's just a, a few years old is called Coast. It's pretty good. Okay. Um, you, you really just can't go wrong. Magnolias, uh, slightly north of Broad, I, just all these things uh, in the downtown area. But, uh, you know, be, be prepared to drop a, a few coins on it. <laughs> and gain a few pounds. I mean, I would literally weigh 300 pounds if I lived there. Gelato place. I mean, you just... <laughs> <it's> like, <laughs> It's so good though. Nothing beats good Southern food. This is true. This is true. Well, let's take us back a little bit. One of the things that I love to do with people is hear their story in, in photography. So why don't you take us through the journey of how you got into photography and, and what led you to where you are now? Yeah, my story is probably a little different than the average, if there is an average. Um, I didn't have a, a huge interest in photography other than I, I always had a camera as a kid, you know, just a point and shoot, but I never understood uh, SLR photography or really had any interest in it whatsoever. Um, I just like snapping pictures and I love making my photo albums and I was happy with that. 
Um, I actually pursued uh, marine science in college, and uh, I did that for a while. I used to work for the Department of Health and Environmental Control here in Charleston. And, uh, and then I met my, uh, my soon-to-be husband here, and he's a physician. And, you know, when you work for the state doing water quality monitoring, uh, you're making about, you know, one eighth what the physician makes. So when we got married, (laughs) he got a new job. uh, We left. We left Charleston for a while. And so I had to quit my job uh, and we moved up to Charlotte, North Carolina. And it was it was kind of ironic. I had to move inland to actually start working with sharks. So, hmm. so I got a job at uh, Discovery Place in downtown Charlotte, which is a, a science and nature museum, kids museum as well. And uh, I was the curator of the aquarium and the rainforest exhibits there. So I swam with sharks and I used to wear boa constrictors around my neck and show them to the kids. And we had a 12 foot Burmese python named Henrietta. Uh, who I used to feed. And, you know, so I've got all these pictures and these wonderful fish stories from from when I worked there. Um, been bitten by just about anything there, except for the sharks. Uh, they were totally, they were sweet, actually. They used to sit on my lap and get pet like puppy dogs, um, which people just love that story. Um, they used to push each other out of the way. One, one would swim and sit on my lap in the tank and just, I would just pet him like a puppy dog. And then the other one would come and push them out of the way and be like, it's my turn. <laughs> <laughs> but they, you know, they were nurse sharks, fairly uh, docile and, and they mm. could, they could sit still where most sharks, they have to, um, if they're pelagic, they have to continually see, swim to br- in order to breathe. Um, but uh, I loved that job. But then uh, my husband got another job and we moved again. And I was like, all right, this is, this is getting kind of nuts, me quitting jobs. And I said, what is it that I enjoy doing that, you know, at least until I find another full-time job, I I could occupy myself with. And so I was like, you know what? I really like taking pictures. And, you know, that sounds kind of lame now that I'm I'm a professional and take it much more seriously. But I took a correspondence course with the New York Institute of Photography, um, which I think is now the New York Institute of Art and Design. But... uh, threw myself into it. Honestly, I, I really started to enjoy it. My first SLR was a Minolta and it was my husband's and it was collecting dust on a closet floor and he had never used it. Didn't know how to use it. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's a common thing, isn't it? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Definitely. Camera and you put it on auto and that's all you do. Yeah. Um, That happened a lot. And so I did start out in film which forces you, you know, digital didn't exist. Really. I mean, it existed, but there was no way I could afford it at the time. Um, and it was so new, people didn't even trust it really yet. So I, I shot film. It makes you work slower. Mm-hmm. Uh, it took longer for me to learn how to do things correctly. And I, I teach a, a beginner class and the thing that that people really like about my beginner class is that I break it down into the most simple, uh, the most simplest of terms to get people to understand. And that is the reason I do that is because I will never forget my first roll of film, my first roll of film. uh, And it was, you know, 24 exposures. I had to go buy it, load it, and then send it off to the lab to, to get developed. And cause I didn't have a dark room. And, you know, I'm just processing at Walgreens for the heck of it. And, uh, and I got it back and I, I literally was in tears because it was the first roll of film that I had ever shot off of auto. I put it in full manual mode and I got back 24, 100% black. (laughs) (laughs) And and, and the thing is, is I had to wait a week for that disappointment. (laughs) And it was it was absolutely crushing because I had spent almost nine hundred dollars on this correspondence course, and I was ready to just toss it all and say I can't do this. Clearly, I don't know what the heck I'm doing, but I don't give up that easily. So I went back to the drawing board and I, I reviewed my notes, and, and I realized that the thing that I didn't do was actually look at the meter. Mm-hmm. And you know, if you've been shooting for you know ten, fifteen, twenty years, you completely take it for granted 
the stuff that beginners will forget to do. And, but I remember that. And I remember feeling, oh my gosh, I'm a complete idiot. I did not even look at the, at the meter, but it doesn't make you stupid. It just makes you new at it, you know, and everybody has to start somewhere. And so the, the correspondence course was absolutely fantastic. It was, so here's how antiquated it was. We had to um, take our photos and send them through the mail and the instructor would tell you on audio tape, like a cassette tape, for real, okay? <laughs> was this in like 1970? Like- no, this was actually uh, 2001. So I mean, what? You think that they would have been on at least CDs by then, but they were still <laughs> operating on cassette tapes. And that was like the only complaint that I had with the school. I was like, y'all need to update your stuff, seriously. Yeah. Um, but they would send back on a cassette tape basically what I did incorrectly, um, what I did right. And if there was something wrong with it, they, most importantly, they told me how to fix it. Mm. And because if you just say this is wrong, but you don't give somebody direction on how to correct it, they'll never get any better. And, and so that's how I learned. And so that's how I teach is, it's like, okay, this is what we need to fix. Um, this is what looks really great. This is what you did that, that is very impressive. And, and, but this is how we can make it better. And I don't even use, like to use the word fix it, but I just want to make it better because my photography is always about making it just a little bit better. And so when I'm working in the field, um, even if it's in my own backyard, even if it's just with my iPhone, uh, I'm always kind of framing things, looking for ways to make something better. Uh, so I think composition, it was, uh, the unit was called developing your eye. And that was my favorite unit because it really, it took me from a point of, and, and me being having a, a scientific background, uh, I was very organized about everything. And so all of my images on the, the first submission that I sent to the school, everything was dead center. And, you know, compositionally speaking now, it's like one of the last things you want to do, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, for most images, you know, we learn about the rule of thirds, you know, which you can always break um, and things like that. But all of my images were dead center. So they had to like, just get that out of me kicking and screaming because that's all I wanted to do was just to line everything up absolutely perfectly. And that's my, my scientific half of me coming out. Um, but the, the developing your eye unit really helped me grow. And I think that that aspect of photography is one of the things that keeps me interested in photography in general, because your eye is always changing. Uh, you will always see things in, in new light in different ways. And, and like you were saying about me, you know, not getting bored with Charleston, photographing mm-hmm. the same things over and over again. I, I just see a different opportunity. Uh, you know, the same tree that I've seen, uh, you know, 50 times, suddenly the light is very different. Suddenly it's coming from, you know, I visited in the afternoon instead of first thing in the morning, like I usually do. And suddenly everything looks different and new and beautiful in a new way. And so I just, anyway, rambling. <laughs> that's, that's, that's fun. I, I, I it, it was a great course. And after studying that course and finishing that, um, we moved again and that time we moved to East Tennessee and I didn't have a job yet. So I was unemployed for a while. And while I was unemployed, I just threw myself a hundred percent into learning to be a better photographer and being in East Tennessee. I mean, I I had the mountains at my Mm -hmm. fingertips all the time. And I spent so much time up and down the Blue Ridge Parkway and Grandfather Mountain. And that's one of the reasons why I do workshops there almost every year now up in the Grandfather Mountain areas, because I, when I lived there, I just, I grew to love it so much and, and waterfalls and sunrises and sunsets and the, and the fog in the valley, the way that it rolls over and uh, just turns this absolutely golden hue right after the sun comes up. And it's, it's such a beautiful area. And then I joined a, um, 
a photography club, the Carolina's Nature Photographers Association. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, I was in Tennessee, but they still let you join if you're out of state. And I went to the uh, club that was down in Asheville, North Carolina, Mm -hmm. and just started going to their meetings and uh, their outings. And, you know, one day they just kind of asked, does anybody want to do a presentation? And I don't know what got into me, but I was like, sure, I will. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what I'm going to talk about. I was such a newbie at that point, but I I had kind of a unique thing when I shot slide film. I was into uh, photographing corals and anemones and, and small fish and things inside of aquariums. And that's actually really hard to do. So when I figured out a method to, you know, kind of avoid the reflections off the glass and things like that, I was like, well, I'll just do a little slide presentation um, for them. And that, that led to them asking me to be the, the coordinator for that region. And I did that for about a year before we, we moved away again. But that's kind of how I started down the road of, of nature photography. And I think having, having all that time uh, you know, unemployed, unfortunately, but all that time <laughs> to dedicate it and to explore uh, the mountains of Western North Carolina and Eastern Tennessee and really develop my photography. And basically, once I once I went manual, I, I almost never went back. I'm, I'm in manual mode almost all the time. And maybe I'm a control freak, but that's just where I live, um, you know, unless I'm shooting wildlife, typically. And uh I, I just practice, practice, practice. And I, I tend to do that. That's just, my, my husband kind of giggles at me. He's like, you just don't do anything halfway, do you? <laughs> Are you a perfectionist? Uh, um, it, it's kind of weird. I'm like a perfectionist procrastinator. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I hear that they, that perfectionists are often procrastinators because if they're not able to do it, to their best to a hundred percent that they just won't do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it was probably a good thing that I had all that time on my hands to, to really throw into photography. And I, I took workshops, you know, because I was a novice and I wanted to see what other people were doing. So I studied with um, Richard Burnaby. Uh, yeah. They know of him and uh, Jerry Greer. They used to do uh, workshops together mm-hmm. uh, back when, I, I, I kind of like to say I knew Richard, you know, back in the day when he was kind of an unknown and he would only charge 200 bucks for a three day weekend. And now, <laughs> now it's like $800. For Probably even a little more, I would a guess. A little more because he's just, he's so good. He's so talented. Um, but, uh, you know, and, and I, I shot Nikon and, and he was shooting Nikon back then. And so he would let me borrow his lenses, which was uh, gracious of him to do. And um, so I learned a lot from him. And uh, going out with the camera clubs, uh, you know, I was always a little nervous going out in the field by myself. Uh, I grew up in Chicago, so I have kind of this natural fear of, like, everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, strangers and people and, uh, and, and not used to, you know, being out on the trails and things like that. And so going out uh, on workshops with people who knew the area uh, made me comfortable enough to go back on my own afterwards. So I loved going to, with uh, the the CNPA, the Nature Photography Group, to these outings, and and they helped me get to know the area with a comfort level that I was okay with. Um, but yeah, that's kind of how it how it started down the road of photography. And I didn't really jump into the world of making any money with it. Uh, that was almost by accident, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't really intend on turning it into an actual career, but uh, my husband and I, after a quick move to Illinois, uh, we had a had our son up there, did not like Illinois, and moved back to Charleston, which is where we are now, about uh, 11 years ago. And I was at the rental house uh, before we bought our, our home that we're in right now. And one of the repair guys came by and he happened to see, I, I just had some kind of makeshift business cards. Cause I, you know, I was trying to sell prints and things like that back in the day. And and he's like, Oh, are you a photographer? And I was like, uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
if you want to call me that, you know, I didn't feel like it, but sure. And he's like, you know, my wife has been wanting to learn photography for a long time. He's like, you, you think you could help her out? And i sure I'd love to. And it was, it was such a wonderful experience. It was so neat to share what I had practiced and what I had learned with somebody else for the first time. Mm-hmm. And it really, it, I just, it, it just jazzed me up. I was so excited when I was done and it, it wasn't, you know, like pat on the back excited. It was excited to see how happy she was having learned something new. Mm. And, and, and for me to be a part of that just made a really big impression on me. And so, um, that was, that was it. I was, I was like, okay, this is what I want to do. Um, I want to help other people become better photographers. And that's what I've been doing for the last 11 years now. Well, I did some research before we jumped on. You did you did skip over one of your jobs that you had, and that was a juggler at Six Flags. <laughs> I did do that for a while. <laughs> um, Juggling what? Uh, uh, just balls. Okay. <laughs> gotcha. I worked in the games department at uh, Six Flags Great America outside of Chicago. And uh, I did that in the summers uh, after after high school when I would come uh, back for the summer in between semesters because I went to USC, uh, University of South Carolina in Columbia, and would go back to Chicago over the summer. And I needed a summer job, and you know, like all teens and early twenties do. And uh, so I lived up in uh, Gurney, Illinois. That's where my mother and my stepdad are. And uh, I was like, oh, Six Flags is just down the road. Let's see if I can get a job over there. And so I just, you know, they'll, they'll hire just about anybody <laughs> 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 with no experience. Um, and so I worked in the games department and they told me, they said, you know, we, we want you to, uh, you know, cheerlead if you can jump up and down shout at people get them to, you know and that kind of thing just embarrasses the heck out of me mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't, i'm not a cheerleader i don't want that kind of attention and and they said you know if you if you learn to juggle that that'll get attention to your game and so every time i worked this one particular game where you had to take the the sandbags and and throw them at the bottles and knock the bottles off the table mm-hmm. um sandbags i would practice juggling with the sandbags uh, until I got to the point where I could juggle actual uh, balls. And um, yeah, it's, you know, it, it wows my 12 year old and it wows the neighbors. And <laughs> <laughs> one of those uh, hidden talents now, I guess. <laughs> what but, happens when you drop one? I've always wondered that. Are there repercussions? No, nah, they just bounce. <laughs> <laughs> now, if I was juggling knives, there would be repercussions. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I didn't know I, if like docked pay came with dropping too many. No, balls. no. They, you know, as long as, as long as you didn't damage anything, I think that they were fine. But, uh, but I, I never got past juggling three. Um, that's all I can do. I'm not one of those really fancy, fancy jugglers, but it's, it is kind of one of those funny things. I was sitting outside with my neighbor, uh, the other day and she had a, container of tennis balls and she, she buys them to to play ball with with her dog i said give me three of those and i started juggling she said i didn't know you could do that she drags her kids out and <sighs> she's like look at what kate's doing just <laughs> juggling balls anything to entertain a child right that's right Hey guys, real quick, I just want to tell you about today's sponsor for the podcast, and that's visualwilderness.com. If you head over to my website too at davidjohnstonart.com, you're going to find all of my courses laid out for you right there that you can get for a limited time for 33% off if you use the code david33 during checkout. Now, when you go to some of my courses, you will be redirected to visualwilderness.com where you will also find a plethora of courses and information that are designed to help you become a better photographer. You can buy those courses individually, but you can also get them for free if you pay for a subscription that's very minimal per month. So you can go to the show notes for this episode at davidjohnsonart.com find that click on that and you can find all the links on how to get a special discount to that monthly subscription 
for the podcast listeners at the bottom of each podcast episode page. But without further ado, let's get back to our discussion with Kate. Now, one of the things that that I picked up that I thought was really interesting, Kate, was most people, especially now starting out in photography, are are completely self-taught. Obviously, we have YouTube now. We have tons of resources on the internet that you can get for free. What benefits do you think the class gave you that you took? Because I I would almost not send people that route if they came and asked to me via email or something, you know, should I go to a class for photography? I think it was the, the feedback that you get hmm. and, and the analysis of how you're doing and suggestions on how to make things better. Because if I had just gone to YouTube and watched somebody do something and, you know, and then I go in my backyard and I try and replicate it. And of course, y- you immediately run into a snag. It's like, okay, well, this isn't working the way that they said it was going to work, you mm-hmm. know, and then you get frustrated and you get angry. Um, I think it was the fact that it, it almost felt as if I did have somebody there because I did. Um, they weren't physically there right next to me helping me learn, which probably would have been even better, I'm sure. Um, but it, it allowed me to do it at my own pace, which I really enjoyed because uh, I, I was working full time at Discovery Place. And so I was just doing this kind of in the evenings and the weekends. And, you know, not everybody has 40 hours a week to go to a class. Mm-hmm. And, and so it, it allowed me to do it on my own schedule. So I could practice the same thing over and over again if I was really struggling with one particular thing. But I have recommended uh, other people who have taken kind of short lessons or individual tutoring with me to look into something like the New York Institute of Photography, because it, it, with something like that, I think because a there's a, a monetary investment in it, and when you invest money in something like your education, you typically will show up mm-hmm. more often than hey that YouTube is on this afternoon you know, and something comes up and you skip it. And it's like, oh yeah, I I keep meaning to watch this and I keep meaning to go back to that email and I keep meaning, keep meaning, keep meaning and nothing ever happens. But when you are taking a class that is structured like that, I think it gives me a little bit more incentive to keep at it, to keep going back to it uh, instead of just, okay, I took my one lesson and then the camera gets put away for a month and then I forget everything. Um, and that's one of the things that I recommend to a lot of the uh, individual tutoring students that I do in town here is don't put the camera down when you get home. I mean, not even when you get home today, cause you're, you know, we're, we're outside, we're in the sun and all of a sudden you're exhausted and you, you're on just overload of information. Uh, and I send people home and I'm like, okay, don't put it in a closet. Don't make it go away for a week. I said, because you'll have to start over from scratch. And having a structured class like that kind of, I think, I think it just makes you keep at it a little bit better than, than just, you know, checking stuff out on YouTube. YouTube is really helpful. Um, I have a YouTube channel. I have little, you know, tips in there. I try and keep them really short and to the point because, uh, you know, people have a short attention span for the most part. So do I, I admit it. <laughs> but uh, I, I think that, structured classes are, are, are pretty helpful for that. Do photographers have a tenacious element to them? And the reason I ask that is because while you were describing, you know, how you just said, you know, keep going back to it, you had to get it right. You tweak everything. It's almost like the hobby of photography, even if you're not doing it for a business is so involved in trial and error, working on something you're not great at and and removing that frustration. And it almost makes me think just sitting here listening to it is, are we more tenacious than, than other art, art forms or hobbies or businesses, whatever you do in photography? That's a really good question. And I mean, I'm not here to psychoanalyze people, but if I were to speak personally for myself, I, that's very true. Um, I 
I took up painting about two years ago. And I, I got to admit, I'm a like draw a stick figure was about the extent of my art talent <laughs> growing up. I had none whatsoever. And I just, I don't know. I just, I got interested in it. And again, I, I did the same thing. I threw myself into it. I was watching YouTubes. I did pay for some online classes and, and, and studied with that. I haven't had any one-on-one -on -one personal instruction. Uh, but paid for some classes, followed some people, kind of watched the people whose style I admired and tried to replicate that. And when it comes to photographers, I, th I think we all kind of do the same thing. We, we are a little bit of a, of a perfectionist, each in our own way. We all have our own little individual styles that, that we try to, you know, perfect over time. And, and our styles change over time as well as we grow, as we see things differently. But we, I, I think so. I have noticed that some of the best photographers are the ones who really just won't, they will not give it up. And, and, and that's a, it's a beautiful thing to have that, that drive, that determination. And, you know, and I can see it in somebody who is brand spanking new. I've had people come to me with a camera st literally still in the box and be like, all right, show me, mm -hmm. <laughs> guide me, start me somewhere. I'm like, all right, well, here's how we put on the strap. <laughs> and here's how you put in the SD card literally starting from scratch, but you can tell different people's level of enthusiasm. Some people are just, you can see it in their eyes. You can hear it in their comments, the way that they are just like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm into this. I'm all over this and, and I'm, I'm going to do this. And I see some of them. I watch them grow on social media. I keep up with them and I see their photography changing and they really do. They, they jump into it and, and, give it all that they have. And it's, it's easier when you, when you have more time. I know nowadays, uh, you know, some people are zooming 24 seven and, <laughs> mm. and other people have more time on their hands. So it's, it, it's a dedication thing. It, it is a, that drive, uh, that, that not everybody has for photography and they may have that drive in other aspects of their life, just not necessarily with their photography, if that makes any sense. Sure. Can I throw in my two cents on it? Absolutely. Okay. So I was just thinking about this and I am here. I, all I do is like psychoanalyze everything. Um, <laughs> I think the description between learning painting and, and taking up photography, especially in the outdoor scene of dealing with nature, is that the disconnect can be control. That painting, you are in control of basically everything, how the image is going to turn out once it's finally done. Photography, you have control of your camera, you have control of your vision, your composition, perspective, where you stand, all that. But there's that lacking element of control that you give up to nature and you're at the mercy of the conditions so often if you aren't doing composite post-processing or anything like that, you are at the mercy of conditions and where you're shooting. And I think that that thought of, well, if I came back this day, that the conditions might be that much better and I could work on this. And I think that's where the, dis, the, the, the difference in those two things is, is, is the control. I agree. And a, another aspect of the control itself, and it's, it's actually one of the things that make me want to learn more, hmm. uh, learn a new technique, is that you know, when you are subject to what nature gives you, um, you know, I hear people say, you know, middle of the day, that's, that's quote unquote, bad light. And I hate that term. There's no such thing as bad light. You know, there's perhaps not the best light for the subject that you are photographing at that time, but it's always good light for something. Mm -hmm. And so not having control over the ambient light like that makes me want to learn how to shoot in shade 
not having control over the rain makes me want to learn how to shoot reflections in puddles. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, and so whatever nature is going to throw at me, I want to have the skills and, you know, and sometimes the equipment, whether it's, you know, having a neutral density filter so I can kind of practice some long exposures. If it's, if it's too windy out, it's like, oh, my flowers are blowing around and people just get really aggravated that nature's not doing what they want it to do. And you have to let go and, and just say, all right, this is what nature's giving me. What can I do that's creative with what nature's giving me? So if nature's giving me wind, I'm going to practice long exposures, blurring and swaying and, you know, different patterns and things like that. And basically I'm just like a big kid. Uh, you know, in a kid in a candy store when it comes to experimenting with my camera, uh, experimenting with software and, and learning new ways of getting around those problems. Is it for you frustrating or inspiring? Uh, it depends on my mood. It's <laughs> a good answer. I mean, I'll admit it. You know, some days it's it's aggravating. It absolutely is. I'm not going to sit here and lie and say it's all rosy and I never get angry in the field. <laughs> Everybody does. Um, I think that I get frustrated not when it's affecting me necessarily because it's like, okay, you know, I'm, I'm at Folly Beach. I can come back. Whatever. It's no big deal. I'll take a picture of this instead and and see what I get. I almost always go home with something that I'm happy with. Is the are there expectations that creep in there that make it frustrating? Well, it's it's when I'm teaching other people that I tend to get more frustrated. It's mm-hmm. when I expect or hope, I don't really expect. I hope that they will have really good conditions. Um I teach these night photography classes and you know, unfortunately, the best time to do the Milky Way in this area of the world is in August. Uh, you know, if you want to do it after sunset and not make everybody get up at three o'clock in the morning, mm-hmm. which I don't know a lot of people who are willing to do that and pay for it, no less. Um, <laughs> <laughs> most people are okay sitting in a classroom for the afternoon and then going and doing a sunset and hoping for the best when it comes to the Milky Way. But it's, it's the worst time of year. It's humid. It's, you know, I mean, you know, you're at the beach and you've just got this horrible haze. It's thunderstorms every afternoon here in Charleston. It's not the ideal time, but we do it anyway. And I'm always hoping that the clouds will clear and it's frustrating when they don't. And, and I get frustrated and I get annoyed, not for me, but for my students. Um, because you know they paid and they want to learn and they they want to have success and it's like okay nature you know but again it's a it's a lesson for everybody to learn nature doesn't always give you what you expect or what you hope for and you just kind of have to roll with the punches and start looking at things differently so you know if i'm out and the milky way is our goal but we have clouds instead it's like all right let's everybody spin around we're not looking over the ocean anymore now we're looking over the city let's start practicing city lights and moving clouds and things like that just for kicks and giggles so it at the same time it can be frustrating but you have to kind of push past the frustration in order to get creative if that makes any sense On your about me page, it says that I love taking photos even when I don't know how, um, that, that completely rang true to me when you were describing how you got started Mm -hmm. and the specific word that you said that we all know and, and love as photographers was composition. Do you think that that statement is true because you had a natural eye for composing a photograph? I think so. Um, I I found out after I had been painting and drawing for a couple of years that my grandmother was an artist. Nobody ever told me this. Why don't don't these people tell me this? (laughs) (laughs) I was like, you didn't tell me this when she was alive. When I was a kid, I could have really eaten all that up. But um, 
so maybe it does run in the family. Maybe I did inherit a little bit of, of an eye. Maybe it was the New York Institute of Photography that really showed me how to look at things a little bit differently. Maybe it's my scientific background that I do so much research and I look at other people's images and I ask myself, well, how did they get that? And what is it about that image that really inspires me? Why do I like that so much? Is it is it because they used a wide angle lens? Is it because they shot it in a certain type of light? Is it, you know, it's it's not always about the location. It's it's about the subject matter and the way that they framed it and uh, you know, whether or not they used a long exposure and, and things like this. And so it, it wasn't just a matter of my own eye, which I think if you have a natural knack for it, that definitely helps, you know, it, it'll make you progress faster. But I also think that you can develop it over time if it's not just this innate thing that by by studying other people's work. And that's another thing that I recommend to beginners is that you you not only look at the pretty pictures and then flip the page or scroll past it on Facebook, but really think about what they did. It's like, okay, are they, what are they using? Are they using shallow depth of field to, to blur the background, to focus attention on the subject? Did they, you know, maybe use a, a lens baby? I don't know if you know Kathleen Clemens and she uses mm-hmm. lens babies all the time and just gets these beautiful ethereal uh, images, which I love, you know, so of course I run out and buy a lens baby, which has been sitting there collecting dust, of course. <laughs> I have one sitting on the shelf behind me. <laughs> I know. And it's like, oh, well, this is really exciting. This is really beautiful. You go and buy a lens and then you don't do it. (laughs) Um, I'm kind of famous for that. But anyway, uh, but yeah, you, you, if you don't have it, I think that you can develop it. I think it's, it's just another training thing, you know, training yourself to get good at manual exposure is one thing. And, and I always tell my students and say that, you know, once you learn the, the ins and outs of your camera, and it doesn't even have to be one camera versus another camera versus another. Shutter speed's gonna do the same thing from model to model. You know, longer shutter speeds, shorter shutter speeds. Aperture is gonna do the same thing from model to model. It doesn't matter what camera you have. But once you learn how all of these things integrate together to get proper exposures, to change the depth of field, to get different effects, after that, I think it it really is dependent on your creativity growing and your eye changing with time and being open to the possibilities of seeing things in a new way Uh, because you know you've got the technical aspect of photography and then you've got the very artistic aspect of photography technical it's like you learn it you got it okay moving on everything else is is really the journey i think Kate, you've mentioned a couple times the the practice of gaining inspiration from somebody else's work. Is there a point where that becomes too much, where it starts to impede on your own creativity? I think so. I, I don't. I don't want you to just you know go around trying to trying to mimic, mimic, mimic. Um, and when people go to like a you know, a famous location at a national park or, or Iceland or, you know, somewhere that, you know, get your shot like everybody else got, okay, <laughs> and then move on mm-hmm. um, and try and do something different. Try and do something that is uniquely yours, because I think that studying other people's work gives you kind of like a baseline to work on. It's like, okay, I, I, I like this style, but when I go and I visit this same location, I'm not just going to take this, try and get the same exact shot that so-and-so took. I want to do something different. I want to work the scene. And so I always encourage people to work the scene. And I think um, it, it was kind of weird. And I, maybe it's a just a, a, a lazy factor. I mean, I'm going to admit it. I can get just as lazy as the next person. Um my photography style and my vision and the things that I would photograph really grew tremendously faster when I got this particular lens. And it was my Nikon 28 to 300. And I think that the, the sheer versatility of going from, and that was for a full frame, from relatively wide angle, you know, anything less than 35, 
and going all the way to, you know, a decent telephoto mm-hmm. on one lens so that I could carry it around and I could look at the same scene from the same exact spot as a wide angle photo. And I could look at the same scene from the same spot with a 300 and come out with 15 completely different looking images without having moved at all. But then if you get up and you do move, you're starting all over again. (laughs) 15 more scenes, right? But the fact that I had that all in one lens and and my little bit of a lazy factor that I have in the background, because I just did not want to take my backpack off and change lenses again. Eventually, Mm -hmm. after hiking and you're tired and it's like, okay, do I really want that shot? And you would actually pass up an opportunity because you were too lazy to change lenses. Yeah. <laughs> Have you been there? I've been there. Oh, hundreds of times. Hundreds of times. And and then I regret it. And I'm like, you know what? I should have gotten that that other shot. I'm kind of bumming that I didn't. And I'd rather have it and not need it than need it and not have it. And, and, and feel like I need to go back and shoot again. And then, of course, by the time I get back, it's gone or something's changed. And, you know... And uh, having the versatility of being able to to capture so much with a single lens really kind of helped me grow quickly, really fast. And um, a lot of the images that I show in my beginner class were taken with that lens when I talk about this exact same subject. Here's your wide angle shot of this waterfall. Now look at this teeny tiny little section of kind of a little cascade off to the left side and how it curves and there's a little leaf running through it and really zoom in on that tiny little piece. And you've got a completely different outlook on the same waterfall. Mm-hmm. And, and I do that with, with almost every subject. I, if I can, you know, I'm not standing on a cliff, but if I can, I'll walk around it. Um, I stand up, I go low, I, stand back, I get closer. Um, I will try and shoot it in different lighting. If I have my own artificial lighting, I might pop some of that in there as well. Um, Although I don't use artificial lighting very much, but sometimes it's just kind of called for. And it's really about experimentation. I think experimentation helps you grow and, and start to see things differently. One of the reasons that I wanted to have you on, Kate, is to basically talk a little bit about post-processing and we'll wrap up after this is on the panel that we were on and we were on a a webinar panel together for visual wilderness just a few weeks ago um, with so much emphasis being put on finding a workflow, a single workflow to follow in post-processing, you kind of have a different approach of I think you put it in in the panel of you just get bored sometimes, so you want to switch it up and, and switch softwares. I do. I it was kind of ironic when I went into marine science. One of one of the things in the back of my head was I just don't want to spend time in an office for the rest of my life. You know, mm-hmm. I want to be outside. I want to be doing something important. And you know, what do I do? I sit in front of the computer all the time. Now. Yeah. But, you know, but if I'm going to sit in front of the computer, I'm going to have fun doing it. And, and that's just me. And, and so I, I will get bored with processing stuff kind of the same way. And when I, when I first started, I, I basically did the same three or four things to every photo. You know, a little bit of saturation, a little bit of sharpening, maybe a little bit of a, a vignette or something. And then I'd kick it out. I mean, like I'm done. And I was okay with that up until uh, one point where I was at one of the CNPA annual meetings. And I'll never forget this because it really, it freed my mind and my reservations to hear, you know, Jim Zuckerman. Yes. Yes. He said one thing and I was like, Oh my gosh, I'm doing this all wrong. (laughs) (laughs) He said, I'm not a photojournalist. I'm a photo artist. Hmm. And when he said that, I suddenly just, it spoke to me and I lost all reservations about experimenting with software. And I I was like, you know what? He's right. This is my art. Nobody fusses at me if I fake my clouds in my painting. 
right? But I will get fussed at if I put it, drop in a fake sky in, in Photoshop, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or at least, you know, 10 years ago, absolutely. It was like forbidden and, and you know, highly looked down upon. And But nowadays it's a little bit more accepted. But I, just like I experiment with my camera and learn new things in the field, I think that doing the same thing on the computer will also help develop your eye. And I do start to bounce around from program to program. Now I have my same uh, basic workflow just to make sure that I'm not uh, accidentally deleting things that I want or, you know, getting completely disorganized where it drives me nuts to get on my computer. I don't want that. I have, I have an organizational system that I'm very consistent with. Um, both on my hard drive and my external hard drives so that I can go to any one of them and expect to see the same exact thing. It just makes things easier for me mentally. But when it comes to, it's like, okay, I've done my raw processing and my keywording and all of those things. From that point forward, it's like, okay, that image looks good and I'm okay with it, but should I just play with it? Or, you know, take it into another program. And I'll, that's, again, kid in a candy store with the software. I will start playing. I'll play with it in uh, Luminar. I'll play with it in Topaz Impression to get that uh, painterly look, you know, which, of course, inspires me to go paint it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> acrylic. Um, or uh, Topaz Glow for certain situations. And I'll do the same thing with those programs that I did with, you know, Photoshop and Lightroom and my camera is I learn, learn, learn. And it it gave me a comfort level that once I'm comfortable with the software that I will experiment, experiment, experiment. Um, Nick software has been kind of a staple of my workflow for years. I started with silver effect pro and honestly, I have not processed a single black and white, with Photoshop or Lightroom since then. Um, I, I always bring it to Silver Effects. That's just my go-to place. And, uh, and then Color Effects Pro came out and I, I incorporate that into most of my images. So that's kind of my usual workflow is like bring it into Lightroom, do all the basics and the raw editing, kick it out to Photoshop, do any layer work that may or, you know, may be necessary. Um, it's, I don't usually spend very much time in there before I bounce it right out to Nick or Topaz or, or something else. And so if you visit my website, you will see a lot of variety there. You will see some uh, images that look very natural, very realistic. And, and again, that's just a mood thing. That's just what I felt like doing, you know, and, and I can go back to the same image, the same raw photo five years later process it again and come out with something completely different based on my mood. Um, and which is also kind of fun to go, go over your, your old work and, and look at it with, with new software and new toys. But, uh, but yeah, I, I, I do kind of tend to bounce around and I never thought I'd be that, you know, I just, I hated computers in college and <laughs> I just don't want any part of this. And, and here I am. That's what I do. I spend a lot of time, uh, on the computer, but I do it in a way that I think is fun. And I have an interesting visual result that makes me smile. And, and, and that's why I do it. That's why I spend the time learning how to use those programs and, and not just, it's like, okay, here's how you bring it in and here's how you apply a look and here's how you kick it out. But I'll look at other people's YouTubes um, and and see how they're using the software in maybe a different way, uh, you know, non-traditional way, and something that to create something that's unique, and and I'll try that as well. So I think experimentation is key when it comes to to software. Once you once you learn the basics, learn your way around, get a little a, a base comfort level with it, and then just start to play. Where do you see software going? in the future with so much emphasis, it seems like being put on computer generation or artificial intelligence. I have no clue. (laughs) (laughs) Is it it exciting or? It's, it's exciting. It kind of blows my mind even thinking about what they're going to be capable of in five to 10 years Mm. because of the relative short amount of time 
as far as, you know, when you think about the existence of photography in general, how many years it had been around and then, you know, color, Ooh, it's in color. <laughs> you know? mm -hmm. And, but when we went to digital, things just seemed to skyrocket exponentially as far as the capabilities of doing things with the software. I know, you know, like I can go into Luminar now and just pick a new sky. This used to be such a task in, in, in Photoshop with the layers and the, you know, layer masks and which scares the dickens out of most people, but I'm, I'm a huge fan of Photoshop layers, <clears throat> you know, and, and I don't think that they're that hard to learn. Maybe you just got to learn with me. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but, you know, now you can, you can, instead of all that process and all that time and effort, now you can bring it into something like Luminar and be like, okay, I like that sky. Boom. Click. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> it just, it does a phenomenal job and it's, it's all this under the hood. I don't even understand it. Uh, algorithms that are going on in these programs and, you know, the things that you can do with your cell phone. You know, when I think back to when my son was born, uh, you know, that's, you know, a little over a decade, he's 12 now. And I was like, the, I was like, why do I have any iPhone video of him? <laughs> oh, that's right. It didn't exist. <laughs> I had a flip phone. I had, you know, it, it, that was like the extent of it. And I, I didn't, I don't even remember if I ever downloaded any of those uh, original photos and, and, and the big honking video camera that I had on my shoulder for crying out loud. And now everything is done on your phone. Um, technology is moving very, very quickly. And with the world of photography, it is, I think, getting harder to stay up to date with it honestly. Um, if you don't have the time to dedicate to learning the new programs when they come out, it's like, okay, they got a new update. Now I got to learn it again. And it's, it's, it's very quick. It's a little bit overwhelming. Um, and if you're, if you're just starting out, I think it is even more intimidating because there is, you know, when I started out in digital, we had a couple of options as far as photo editing was concerned. And that was it. And, and now you've got 50. And Not only learning a new software, but <clears throat> people like us, we have to make a whole new course on the new ways that you can do something in a software. Well, yeah, I've got a Facebook group for, um, I, I like doing textures uh, on photography and it's one of the uh, workshops that I teach. And so I've got this Facebook group, Creative Textures Photography. And I've got a video that I made for people who are new to the idea of, of putting a texture on an image. And it's just, you know, a little 15 minute, this is how you do it. And I'm looking at the video and I'm going, God, I need to fix this. It's, it's, <laughs> it's four years old and it looks like it was made 20 years ago mm -hmm. because Photoshop looks completely different. And mm -hmm. the little, uh, texture panel that I had in there doesn't work anymore. And, um, and now they've come out with, um, Oh, what is that program? I think it's called infinite textures mm -hmm. or something like that. And it's something like that, something like that, but it's so expensive. I was like, you know what? I'll just do it the old fashioned way. I'm happy with that. But it, again, it's like a one click. Here's your texture on your image, spit it out. And I don't have to do any work. Um, I was like, well, where's the fun in that? You know? <laughs> I like doing well, the work. Well, she's Kate Sylvia. Kate, I had I had some political questions ready for you, but we're no, out of time. No, no. <laughs> we don't do political questions here. <laughs> Where can people go to find more out about you? Uh, www.katesylviaphotography.com and that's S-I-L-V-I-A. Not Silva. I get called Silva all the time. <laughs> and when the phone rings and they ask for Catherine Silva, I'm like, yep, telemarketer, goodbye. Um, I'm on Facebook, I'm on Instagram and I am on YouTube all under Kate Sylvia photography. So you can find me under the same name for all of those things. Um, I try to post on YouTube. Huh, I'm going to lie and say once a week, but it's usually every two weeks. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, mostly photo editing stuff. I'm starting to get into more, um, you know, here's, here's how you do things in the field. But uh, I don't travel 
as much as I would like. Uh, you know, I would love to be one of those photographers who does, you know, Iceland and Patagonia. And I'm completely and utterly envious and jealous of people who get to do that. But uh, my life just won't allow it. So I think spending more time on the photo editing aspect and, and also just, you know, I live in Charleston. Who needs to go anywhere else? Come on. <laughs> it's very true. It is very true. There's so much here. Um, so yeah, just, uh, we, we're in the middle of sand gnat season, which is my least, uh, it's, it's probably the best time to get out and photograph, but the absolute worst time for bugs. Um, those things will pick you up and carry you off. They're crazy. But uh, it's it's getting cooler out, and we're getting into our, our fall color here, which is purple. Our fall color is purple. Um, and it's it's the sweet grass that blooms in October here, which is awesome. We just we just don't get a lot of fall color here. I got to go up to the to the mountains to get fall color, so I, I, I joke about our fall color being purple sweet grass. <laughs> well, let me know when you go up there. Maybe we'll cross paths, Kate. But but thanks so much for joining us on the podcast and sharing your thoughts. I appreciate it. It was fun.